0: The debate over nature versus nurture is a hot topic among true crime listeners. It's the question of whether our biological makeup or what is in our DNA makes us who we are, or whether the environment that we are raised in contributes more to who we become. This is often hotly debated when it comes to murderers, certainly mental, emotional, and physical abuse, or being subjected to evil on a regular basis as a child would make it seem normal or acceptable to a child, and that may transition with them to adulthood. But what if a murderer is raised in a home where none of these things happened? What if the child came from a larger family where the other children are completely normal? What if despicable acts are committed by someone who is only a child? Today's case seems to argue for nature or a biological disposition to commit evil. This case is pretty gruesome, and definitely not for young ears. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. Thanks for listening. Please don't mind the sound of the waves in the background. Again, for you new listeners, I record on a boat. I hope you find it more relaxing than irritating. Charlie Brandt was born on February 23, 1957. He's the only son to Herbert and Elsa Brandt. He was the second born of a family that will eventually grow to four children. Charlie and his older sister Angela were born first, followed by two more younger sisters born nearly ten years later. In 1968, the family decided to move to Fort Wayne, Indiana. Herbert was offered a higher paying job, and they were able to move into a nicer, bigger home. At this point in their lives, life was very good for the Brant family. They were even able to have a second home in Florida. Not only that, but Elsa was pregnant once again with what would be the Brant's fifth child. Charlie did not do well with the move to Fort Wayne. He was having trouble fitting in at his new school and was picked on a lot. At this point, he was a meek, introverted boy and didn't stand up for himself. Possibly in an attempt to make his son feel better, Herbert planned a boys-only hunting trip. He took Charlie and his best friend, who at the time was their family dog, a little beagle. They had just returned from a winter vacation to their Florida home. Charlie loved Florida and wasn't looking forward to coming back to dreary cold Indiana, but this hunting trip lightened his mood. Charlie was nearly 14 years old at this time, and perhaps he'd get to do some shooting today. The dog was brought along to flush the animals from the bushes, and at some point during the trip, He wasn't responding to being called. They heard him in the bushes nearby, and in an attempt to scare him and to bring him running back to them, Herbert claims to have shot into the bushes. Unfortunately, the shot killed the beagle. This incident, oddly, didn't seem to bother Charlie at all. His father, at one point, commented that Charlie seemed completely indifferent to his pet's death. As we get to know Charlie a little bit better and the story progresses, some of you may believe that Charlie actually shot the dog. Maybe he acted on impulse. Herbert always protected and covered for Charlie. But as far as we know, and we are told, but as far as we know, it was Herbert that accidentally shot the dog in the bushes. On January 3rd, about one week later, life was becoming routine again after their nice vacation. The family had just finished dinner. The younger girls were put to bed and Charlie had finished his homework. Angela was still awake. She's 15 now, and she's reading a book quietly in her room before going to sleep. Charlie's pregnant mother is soaking in the bathtub, just trying to relax after a long, hard day. Herbert's in the same bathroom, shaving and talking with his wife about the day. As they talk, they hear the sound of footsteps outside the door, and suddenly Charlie's in the room with them. In his hand, he's holding a gun, and he begins firing. Herbert is yelling at Charlie, telling him to stop. Her mother is screaming, "'Angela, call the police!' Angela heard the shots, but she didn't realize right away what she was hearing. She ran towards the sounds. Suddenly, her brother is standing right in front of her, and the gun is pointed at her now. She sees Charlie's face clearly. His eyes seemed cold and empty. She sees her father's gun in his hand, and she sees his finger squeeze the trigger. The gun clicks, but no bullet fires from the chamber. He's out of ammunition. He drops the gun, jumps on her, and attempts to kill her. He is punching her, kicking at her as she fights back. Eventually, he wraps his hands around her neck. She tries to reason with him, telling him that they need to leave. They need to go, to run away and to hide somewhere together. She said, we'll take our sisters with us and we'll hide. She's getting desperate and she squeaks out, Charlie, I love you, I love you. The blank look on his face disappears and he asks himself and her, what have I done? He rolls off of her, seemingly confused and tells his sister to never leave him. He follows her downstairs. Angela and her sisters are blissfully unaware that their mother has died from her four gunshot wounds. Her bathtub is now bloody, and the baby died with her. Charlie's father, however, has survived the three shots he unwillingly absorbed. Angela walks with Charlie downstairs. She looks out the window, telling Charlie she's going to start the car. She asks him to go and get some blankets for them and for their sisters. He looks at her warily and asks her if she's going to leave. She assures him that no, she'll be right back. But as soon as she turns her back and is far enough away, she runs as fast as she can to her neighbors. She bangs on the doors and windows of her friend's house next door, but they don't answer. She moves on to the next house and pounds on their door as well she reaches a third house before someone finally answers the door. During this time, she's realized that Charlie is outdoors as well. He's outside now, following her tracks and calling for her. He's speaking to her in the darkness, reminding her that she promised she would never leave him. He reaches the first home and is knocking on their door calmly. Angela's friend opens the door and lets him in. At about the same time, Angela finally enters another neighbor's home, and almost at the same time, they tell two sets of neighbors that their parents are dead, and that Charlie shot them. Emergency services arrive shortly thereafter. They find Elsa and the baby are dead, and that Herbert is still alive. The little girls are just fine. They were woken up and reunited with Angela. Friends took them for the evening. Charlie is taken into custody. Herbert is taken to the hospital, and Elsa and the unborn baby are taken to the morgue. Charlie is evaluated by therapists, questioned by police, and lovingly, forgivingly supported by his father. He's allowed to go to his mother's funeral, but he's in handcuffs and shackles. His remaining family are there. His father is temporarily in a wheelchair and everyone at the funeral is miserable. But Herbert still attempts to give Charlie a smile. Because of Charlie's father's support, the courts are very lenient with him. He is sent to a psychiatric hospital where he's given therapy. But it's reported he was never remorseful. He was not diagnosed with any mental disorder. The doctor believed that he just snapped, and whatever caused the problem was no longer part of who Charlie was. They believed it was a one-time incident. He was found innocent of planning for this murder. Charlie was dismissed from the hospital after only six months of treatment. He was allowed to go home, and it was stated that he was no longer a threat to his family. And once again, he wasn't mentally ill. Over the next few years, the family moves to Ormond Beach, Florida. Charlie is attending high school with his sister, who's just a couple years ahead of him. His younger sisters have been told that their mother died in a car accident with their baby sister. Angela has made a new friend. His name's Jim. At the time, she didn't know that he would become her husband, and Jim, perhaps trying to impress Angela, made an attempt at becoming awkward Charlie's friend. A genuine friendship blossoms, and Jim helps Charlie through some ups and downs in dating girls and life in general. When Charlie is 16, his father remarries and decides to move back to Indiana with his new wife and two youngest daughters. Charlie and Angela decide to stay in Florida and finish school. They were not left alone, though. Charlie's grandparents flew in from Germany and lived with the kids until they became more independent. Eventually, Angela does marry Jim, and she shares with him what Charlie had done when he was younger. Jim, of course, was hesitant to believe this truth. However, a short time later, in the heat of summer, he was able to see for himself the bullet scars on Herbert's back. Jim felt it was necessary to talk to Charlie himself about what happened, and Charlie seemed comfortable with having someone to talk to about what he had done. This brought the two of them even closer together. Unfortunately, Jim and Angela ended up getting a divorce a few years later, stating that they were too young to have gotten married. Charlie remained close to Jim. Jim was broken hearted about the divorce and told Charlie so. Charlie, being a good friend, suggested they go fishing and have a few beers to talk about it. Charlie seemed to enjoy being a shoulder to cry on for Jim, even though Jim's complaints were about Charlie's own sister. As the day drew on and more and more drinks were poured, Charlie was quoted as saying, if you really want to get back at her, the best revenge is when you cut someone's heart out and eat it. Jim knew that Charlie was odd, but this statement stuck with him. Jim rationalized that it was probably just the drink talking, but it still felt weird to him. They go back to fishing and drinking. Jim and Charlie end up going to college together, and Charlie even lives with Jim and his mother for a short time. They become closer and closer. Jim's mother welcomed Charlie into her home, even though she was told by Jim about his past. Charlie eventually graduated college with a degree in electronics. Charlie and Jim continued to fish together when they could, but Charlie often ended up alone in the fishing boat. He spent a lot of time there. Alone, preferring a reclusive lifestyle. He liked to study medical books, especially ones with cadavers and diagrams of women's bodies dissected. He had an evil growing inside him and turned to the internet to find what made him tick. The internet wasn't enough, though. On September 20th, 1978, a 13 year old girl named Carol Ann Sullivan vanished. She was on her way to a bus stop when she went missing. She was enjoying her independence, as this was the first time she was allowed to walk there alone. It is likely that she ran across Charlie at this time. Perhaps he dragged her into the lake. Her mother has a lifetime of pain, missing her daughter and possibly blaming herself for her daughter's disappearance, even though she's clearly innocent here. Meanwhile, Charlie returns home to Jim and his mother. Perhaps the television news came on, and across the screen it was reported that the head of a 13-year-old girl who had been missing for about a month was found in the nearby lake. Perhaps there was some discussion about who could have done something like this, and what if you were the one to find that grisly item? When Charlie sees this news, he begins laughing uncontrollably. Jim and his mother witnessed this burst of laughter. He laughed so hard, especially after seeing the looks of disgust on their faces. He was asked to leave the house shortly after this incident, but that didn't bother him. He just spent more time at the lake. He liked to fish around the area where the head was found, in a rusted old paint can. He begins work at a company called Raytheon. He was stationed in the Bahamas as part of an anti-drug task force. Raytheon has worked with the U.S. government for more than 15 years and supports the counter-drug mission in the Caribbean Sea in South America. They design a radar system that is specially suited for long-range surveillance of large open water. Clearly, someone who worked for the company would easily be able to intercept drug shipments, or perhaps they would know the ins and outs of how to get around being spotted. Maybe they would use this intel to help drug traffickers smuggle drugs into the U.S. and put some of that drug money into their own pockets. Charlie was guilty of this. He had access to drugs, and he had access to poor Caribbean women. Some of them may have been used to satisfy his darker desires. There was a small town near Raytheon's headquarters. It was called Brown Town, and it was where many of the employees would go for sex. I tried to find out exactly where in the Bahamas he was stationed, but couldn't find the answer. Maybe someone listening to this is screaming the answer at me as they listen. I would love to know. Charlie was known to go to Browntown regularly. He's not tied to any deaths there, but many women in the sex industry live dangerously and occasionally disappear. Not only that, but he was in an area of the world where there was a lot of police corruption. Many times, with disappearances like these, unfortunately, there is little to no police involvement at all. Later in life, Jim would come forward saying he believed that Charlie began killing women at that time and that he was a serial killer in the making. Charlie told his closest friends that what he did all day was fish, floating out on the beautiful blue water, partaking in the local drugs, and he made money drug-running or selling intel on the side. He told his friends that he found a duffel bag full of pure, uncut cocaine, which he sold and made a killing. hundred grand to be exact. On a personal note, we met a local who claims to have found a bag of drugs, too. We didn't ask him what he did with it. It seemed rude, or maybe a little bit dangerous to ask. Charlie used his money to buy a nice house in Florida. He also bought a much nicer fishing boat one with big motors, one that could easily run drugs. Somehow, he made enough money to reclaim retirement at 28 years old. In 1985, he started thinking about getting married and dating someone who would become his life partner. He asked his bestie, Jim, if he knew anyone who was a quality woman for him to date. Jim asked the girl he was dating at the time, a woman named Nancy, "'if she had any friends who might want to date Charlie. "'Nancy did indeed have a friend, and they double-dated. "'Charlie hit it off with Terry. "'Charlie and Terry were married the following year. "'It was a small wedding. "'When Charlie started talking about marrying Terry, "'Jim asked Charlie if he had told her "'about when he killed his mother when he was younger. "'He said no, and that he had no intention "'of telling her either.' Jim stepped forward and said, You have to tell her, and if he didn't tell, then Jim would. So Charlie went to his sister Angela and asked her advice. Angela agreed with Jim and suggested that Charlie tell Terry as soon as possible. Both of them believed that Charlie had told Terry the truth. Shortly after they were married, they moved to a new home on Big Palm Key in the Florida Keys. She was his buffer between his oddness and the people they met. She was very outgoing and friendly. She had a job there on the island, and he spent his days fishing and enjoying his life. They seemed to be truly in love and very happy together. On December 17, 1968, a 21-year-old woman named Lisa Sanders attended a party on No Name Key. For some reason, she chose to leave the party... And the following day, her body was found mutilated, only a mile from where the party had been. Her head had been smashed, and her body was hidden in a field behind a rusted-out car. Her eyes had been cut out, and many of her organs were missing, as well as her heart. Investigators thought at first that maybe animals were the reason for this, as she had been left outdoors. The case went cold, and the investigation went nowhere. Meanwhile, things between Terry and Charlie were beginning to change. Suspicion and confusion were rising. Terry kept a journal in which she noted that Charlie would disappear in the middle of the night, with no explanation. She kept notes about his behavior. She recorded times that he would just disappear or his attitude would unexpectedly change. His excuse was that sometimes he just got an itching to go fishing, and he absolutely had to scratch it even though that may have been what he was doing during his retirement, day after day. If he came home with blood on his clothes, there was always the same old excuse that it was from fish he had caught. The problem was, sometimes she didn't see the fish that he claimed to be cleaning. But for the most part, they were happy. And a lot of things were probably written off as just being odd old Charlie. Sherry Parrishow was smart and beautiful. She had been valedictorian and a beauty queen in her younger years. But life has a way of throwing curveballs, and maybe her plans didn't work out in life the way she thought they would. This was likely the case for Sherry. When Charlie found her, she was essentially homeless and living in a small rowboat. Many people in the area knew of her. They embraced her oddness, as they did many of the other drifters and oddballs known to live in the Keys. They knew she chose to live this way. On July 19th, 1989, a local couple were fishing off a bridge near the swimming hole where Sherry was known to anchor her rowboat. Their hook snagged something big, and when they pulled it in, it was attached to Sherry's dead body. Her throat had been nearly cut all the way through, almost decapitating her. Her stomach had been sliced open. Her bowels and her heart were missing. Her right nipple had also been cut off the cause of death was blood loss and or drowning. Her dinghy had cut marks in the bottom of it. She had been killed in her own boat, and maybe it happened out on the water. Her belongings were pulled from the bottom of the ocean basin. Fingerprints were taken, but at the time, Charlie Brandt's fingerprints were not in the system. His records had remained sealed. When the police went door to door, they unknowingly stopped just a door or two short of Charlie and Terry's home. A profiler said they were likely looking for a man who was antisocial, likely not married, and unable to hold down a job. He may have been psychotic, and likely not sexually active. This didn't fit Charlie's profile at all. He was completely off the radar for the police, but he had just come blinking lightly onto Terry's radar. Shortly after Sherry's murder, Terry approached Jim without Charlie's knowledge. She told him that she was thinking about calling the police about Charlie. She said she came home from work early one day and found Charlie in his fish cleaning room. He was completely covered in blood, but there was no fish. The canal where Sherry's body was found was only a couple blocks away. Jim's advice was to let it go, because she was likely paranoid. So she did and a couple more years went by with no alarm bells ringing. In the mid-90s, another body would appear with a missing head and a missing heart. You can see where I'm going with this. Darlene Toller was a sex worker. She had three children, and she needed to take care of them, as well as her drug habit. She did this by selling her body. She had a home, and that's where she kept her children safe. Her boyfriend would watch her children while she worked, She worked in Miami in Little Havana. One night while working, she disappeared. Her body was found doubly wrapped in a garbage bag and a blanket. The body was butchered almost surgically. There didn't seem to be cuts to any bones or unnecessary work to remove her bowels and heart. The only other clue was that there was little tiny dog hairs on the blanket she was wrapped in. Later, When Charlie became a suspect in the case, his immaculate car records of gas purchased and miles driven correlated with the distances it would have taken him to drive from his home to Miami and back. The dog hairs threw a little bit of a wrench in the investigation as Charlie and Terry didn't own a dog, but due to diligent police work, it was found that Charlie had volunteered to take a friend's dog to the vet that week. Microscopic comparison of the dog hairs concluded that the hairs found on the blanket matched Charlie's friend's dog. Charlie was conclusively linked to the murder of Darlene Toller. Unfortunately, too late, Charlie was already dead. In 2004, hurricanes aplenty loomed over Florida's coast. During hurricanes, Charlie and Terry would head north to Terry's niece's house. Her name was Michelle. Michelle Jones was Terry's surrogate daughter. Charlie loved Michelle, too, but for a more perverse reason. He had a nickname for her that he would use when his male friends were around. She was called Victoria's Secret. She was 37 years old and was a sales executive who owned her own home. She was successful in her life and had many close girlfriends. Michelle enjoyed having the company of her aunt and uncle, She enjoyed having breakfast and dinner with them before and after her work day. Little did she know, her privacy was being invaded while she was at work. Charlie had been going through her things. On Thursday, September 9, 2004, Charlie had returned to work as he was bored in retirement. He had been rehired by Raytheon, but had been hearing rumors that all new staff were going to be subjected to a thorough background check. This made Charlie worry a little bit, but when he heard that Hurricane Ivan was approaching, his overwhelming feeling was happiness. He told a co-worker that he was excited to go to, quote, Victoria's Secret's house. "'This girl had it all,' he said. "'She's intelligent, has a good job and a good home. "'She can't find a boyfriend. "'The last guy she dated was divorced and didn't even have a car. "'I can't understand it.'" On September tenth, 2004... Debbie, one of Michelle's best friends, came over for a drink. She spent the night and then extended her stay through the weekend. She enjoyed Aunt Terry's company, too, and she'd been told that Terry and Charlie were on their way there to hide from Hurricane Ivan's wrath. Saturday, the 11th, brings the arrival of Terry and Charlie. They partied late into the night. Around 2 a.m., Debbie walks downstairs and sees Charlie pacing back and forth in the kitchen. He was standing near the knife rack with a glazed look in his eyes. He leered at her breasts. Something about this encounter scared Debbie and she decided to leave the next morning after letting Michelle know that her uncle had creeped her out. On Sunday the 12th, Charlie and Terry made plans to visit Charlie's dad on Ormond Beach. They spend the afternoon together and then go to Charlie's younger sister's house for dinner. While there, he becomes antsy He claimed the whole trip was silly and that he wanted to go back to his home in the Keys. Terry convinced him that it would be rude to leave early. Angela, Charlie's older sister, was supposed to have been at the dinner as well. Unfortunately, she couldn't make it and called Charlie to apologize and to ask if he and Terry wanted to come over for dinner the following night. He replied, "'No, sorry. We're going to be staying with Michelle.' Angela later said that she felt his response was ominous. She always held the healthy fear of her brother. She felt anxious at night and wasn't able to sleep until every door and window had been locked. She also never left her children alone with Charlie. She was scared her brother would still come for her. When it was time for Charlie and Terry to leave his younger sister's home, both Jessica and Charles' father Herbert were surprised to get a hug from Charlie. He held them tight and for a long time. Longer than was normal for Charlie. The next day, Monday, the hurricane had passed. Terry is insisting now that they need to head home, which was a role reversal for the couple. Michelle's probably ready for them to go, but for some reason Charlie is insisting that they stay for just one more day, maybe two, On Tuesday, Michelle's friend Lisa was going to come for dinner, but Michelle told her, don't come. She goes on to explain that Terry and Charlie were drinking and arguing, and that it wasn't any fun there. Lisa asks if she should come over to dispel some of the tension, but Michelle says no, and that she's just going to go to bed early. Later that evening, Michelle's mother calls, but Michelle's phone went straight to voicemail. Michelle's mother tries calling Terry as well, but also got no response. She finally calls Debbie, Michelle's friend, and asks her to go over and check on Terry and Michelle. Debbie agreed to do so. She had also been trying to reach Michelle, and they'd had plans for a girls' trip the following weekend. Michelle wasn't answering her, either. She had a spare key to Michelle's house and drove on over. On the way, she called her friend Lisa and they both agreed to meet at Michelle's house. They were both concerned enough to leave their lives and their homes in the middle of the night to come check on Michelle. They arrive and see all the cars accounted for in the driveway. The lights are off, though. She knocks on the doors and feels panicked. She rounds the house to knock on the doors in the back. It's 2 a.m. They should definitely be there. They should be waking up from sleep. answer the door. Panic sets in. Debbie tries the keys, but the doors won't open. They look through the garage window and see Charlie hanging there. He has a noose around his neck and his tongue protruded grotesquely from his mouth. He's clearly dead. Once investigators arrived, they entered the house easily with Debbie's key. This was a blessing and perhaps a guardian angel was protecting her from the scene inside. Inside, on the living room sofa, was the body of Terry Brant. She had been stabbed ten times. She wore pajama pants and a bloody T-shirt. The pajama bottoms had been pulled down to her ankles. Not something any loving husband would ever want anyone to see. Not something any loving husband would ever do to his wife. Inside Michelle's bedroom was the body of Michelle. Her corpse was mutilated and beheaded. Her head was sitting on the bed, turned toward her body. Her intestines had been pulled out and placed in a garbage can, which was next to the bed. Her chest had been cut open, and her heart was removed. Both her breasts had been cut off as well. Her leg was severed and lay on the side of the bed. The parts that had been removed had been cleaned and lay neatly next to the head. There wasn't much blood on the bed, which meant that the worst brutality to her body happened after she had died. The killing wound was a single stab wound directly to her heart. She had been stabbed in the bathroom unexpectedly. It sounds eerily familiar to young Charlie's M.O. The investigators believed that Terry was killed first, "'perhaps while sleeping, as she didn't have many defensive wounds. "'Then the killer moved to Michelle's room "'where she was preparing to go to bed. "'He killed her. "'Ironically, her Victoria's Secret underwear "'were laying on the bed next to her body. "'Additional pairs were strewn about the room, "'many with one side cut out, as if he had tried to put them on, "'and this was the only way he could make them fit. "'Or perhaps he put them on her corpse.' for her own perverted enjoyment. Her autopsy showed that she had been sodomized after she was killed. Towels had been used to clean her heart. Dirty towels and dirty bloody clothes were found on the floor. What happened in this house? Did an intruder kill them all? Was Charlie forced to hang himself? No one seemed to know. Charlie's father kept quiet, but this was all too much for Angela. She went to the police and told them about Charlie's past, about him trying to kill her, her father, and successfully killing her mother and sister. This startling revelation saved so much time. The investigators knew what to do from that point forward. They turned their attention to Terry's journals and started to track Charlie's whereabouts. They studied his method of killing and began looking for murders that fit this profile. Michelle's friend Debbie recalled a time that she was at a party with Charlie, Terry, and Michelle. She decided to leave the party momentarily to go for a quick swim. When she'd finished, she'd stepped out of the lake. She said she saw Charlie hiding in the reeds. She asked him what he was doing, and he didn't respond. Instead, he slipped backwards into the woods and out of sight. So stalking was a part of his routine. His computers were full of autopsy photos, websites that showed violence towards women and snuff films. He also had an extensive collection of Victoria's Secret catalogs. It was only after this final brutal murder of his wife and niece that the other murders I mentioned earlier were linked to Charlie, Carol Sullivan, the 12-year-old, couldn't be definitively linked to Charlie Brandt, but he lived in the county at the same time she went missing. Lisa Saunders' murder was also linked to Charlie, but it's not proven either. Sherry Parrishow was determined to be killed by Charlie. Her death was so close to him. He also fit a composite sketch of the man who was seen walking near where her body was discovered on the night of her murder. Darlene Toller was the sex worker from Miami. As I stated earlier, her death was definitively linked to Charlie. He was definitely guilty of killing six, including his mother, his unborn sister, his wife, his niece, Sherry Pariseau, and Darlene Toller, and the attempted murder of his father and sister, but police suspect there are more missing women who could be attributed to this monster of a man. His nature was pure evil. Thank you to those of you who have taken the time to reach out and by giving the podcast recommendations, ratings, or reviews on your podcast platforms. A very big and special thank you goes out to those of you who have chosen to sponsor the podcast. You are truly treasured. This week, I'd like to start by thanking my sister, Tammy, who has been crucial in helping the podcast improve. Her weekly advice and appraisal has been wonderful and greatly appreciated. I'd also like to thank Sandy J, who says she's really enjoying the podcast. Thank you, Sandy. A final thank you to Tom K. and Tim for sending me great episode recommendations, which will be coming your way soon. If you would like to help support the podcast, there is a link in the show description that will show you how to do so. And that is also where all my research materials are located, if you'd like to read up on the case a little bit more. Again, thank you so much for listening, and I'd like to wish you all a great week, and as always, fair winds and following seas.